Welcome to another episode of Promoted and Paid. I am Samuel Lawrence, your host, and today I have a special guest with me. I have Ayo. So Ayo is an executive director in a global investment bank, but I'll let him do his own introduction and we're going to talk a bit more about him, his background and what advice that he can give you about getting to your next level. So Ayo, thank you very much for taking the invitation and being here. Thanks for having me. Great. So can you tell us a bit more about, you're an executive director, global investment bank. What does that mean? What is it that you do day to day? Fine. So perhaps, well, one, by the way, just to say as a podcast, as a, as, a, as a platform, thanks for even having this in the first place. I think stories like this are important to, to, to share. What do I actually do in banking? So perhaps I'll just start with the division I actually sit in. So I sit in what we call private wealth management as a, as a role. I'm a wealth advisor. Yes, as you've said, an exec director. What do I actually do? There are two core mandates and probably, you know, I'll describe it, stop there and you can just probe away and then we okay. can go from there. The first, ultimately speaking, is to be almost, I guess, a conduit, or at least really manage the relationship between us as a bank and what we call high net worth individuals. Okay. These are people, and it's the full spectrum, right? These are entrepreneurs, self-starters, people who have walked into wealth. And to say, for example, if you were to start a business today, mm-hmm. it did very well over five, 10 years, and you were to exit and you suddenly had, let's say, 50 million. Mm-hmm. No one's really educated or taught what to do with that sum of, of money. Yeah. And so therefore you seek professional, I guess, the guidance, help, advice to say how best do I actually structure and invest it. And that's the second part. It's to take the assets, understand who the clients are, what their story is, who their families are, what their long-term ambitions are, and say how best should those assets or money be invested so that it can meet their goals, needs, and then utilize the entire debt from breadth of the bank that I operate in today to help them reach those goals. So that's the two parts. Manage the relationship and really be a conduit between them and the whole bank, and then invest the actual assets as well. And when it comes to that side, we, you spoke about taking their assets and investing. Like, are, are there any restrictions on, hey, we only invest in particular types of assets? This is generally in, in private wealth management. Or do they instruct you and say, I want to invest in something and then you go and do it? So essentially, I guess what I'm asking is, you give the advice. I mean, are you able to say to bring them into something new? How we go about, or at least how I would go about investing assets or money for clients it's the same as, well, I guess, anything that is relative to you that's personal to you, right? If you think about your health and a doctor was to diagnose you, yes, they can give you generic health advice, but if it's going to be relevant, it's very much, Sam, who are you? What's your story? That's true. You know, what's your family background? How do I tailor what I'm doing so it fits you and your day-to-day? Okay. Same goes for, for finance. In fact, even before wealth management, I was always intrigued in sort of financial literacy, if you like. Yeah. What does it mean to be financially sound? This was always just, I think back to when I first applied to, to uni and I was writing, you know, these, these personal statements. You yeah, know? yeah. And you freestyle most of it. But <laughs> the beginning of mine was inflation, right? And it was, if there is so much money in the world, obviously speaking, where there's the access to print off money, why don't we print off enough for everyone to have enough and everything should be fine? Mm. Of course, inflationary pressure and everything else is a problem. Yeah. But there was this curiosity to, to, you know, what does it mean to be financially sound? What does it mean to look after money? What does it mean to grow it? What does it mean to preserve it? Okay. I just didn't have answers to. Yeah. Because yeah. growing up, and I grew up in South East London, these weren't questions that we, or topics that we discussed all the time. Mm. So that curiosity then pushed me to go on and study, and I did my exams, and then to say, actually, if I can do this for a living, then actually what I do, ultimately speaking, is financial literacy for those who have large sums of money. But it's the same right. concept. Right. This is what you have. This is your, your family situation. Here are the tools that we can access. It's my job to help bridge that gap and say, here's how we invest your assets for the goals that you want. And if I think, you know, 
recently now ESG and ESG considerations is becoming an, a growing topic. Yeah. Is to say, well, this is who you are as a person. Here is the investment landscape and universe. Here's how we help you meet your goals with what exists in the world. Okay. And then that's where I continue to just bridge the gap and do the actual investment piece in-house. Is that something that you spoke about, you know, sort of where your inspiration came from? Yeah. Because you had that curiosity that took you there. And then when you were actually studying and beyond, did you have in your mind what company you wanted to work for uh, and how you wanted to get there? How did that work? As in from the very beginning? Or... Yes, from the beginning. Oh, boy. So let's start from the very beginning. I didn't even know the financial industry existed in the format that I do today, right? So growing up, it was, uh, so again, I guess what heritage-wise, Nigerian family, very education-focused. So it was always, you know, go, study, do well. I mean, that's not unique (laughs) to me. That's just the theme. (laughs) And it was, okay, great. Let me get good grades because that's what I'm supposed to do. But I don't know why else I'm getting the actual grades. It was just, this is what people are are supposed to do in school then it was the careers that were suddenly you know the not just design careers but the ones that were communicated be a doctor be a lawyer be an engineer yeah. uh and an accountant i think that was the full spectrum yeah <laughs> and i looked across the spectrum and i'm like none of those really interest me but accounting maybe i can do that and so off i went and it was always maths economics and then it was almost as i got to uni and again uni was just an evolution it was oh i finished sixth form i'm supposed to keep studying Right. Not a, oh, this is the career I want. And I just carried on. Economics, math, stats was my degree, undergrad. And it was, and I say most of my journey so far, so far has been a freestyle. Okay. In that it's always been, here's where I am now. Here's what now is suddenly on the table. Maybe I can go and do that thing. Right, right, right. Because it wasn't put there early enough. And I think that's an important thing that has missed out yeah. on the journey. So I discovered banking probably in my final year of okay. uni. Went to apply, discovered that, you know, internships and everything else was a prerequisite by that point didn't have any of that but I knew I wanted to be in sales okay. and I think this came from I know it was a book I read or someone I spoke to who said you should never work for money but you should work for the skills that will lead to money right and I think that's something that I was fortunate enough to hear at 16, 17 okay. pick this up and personally I was someone that just loved the idea of selling yeah. yeah give me an idea you give me a concept you give me a book a hand a purse and if I can sell this well enough value is created yeah i thought well this is so the onus is on me to be better at selling so i said for the first part of of my career i just want to be really good at selling so any corporation that will give me the opportunity to get better at selling i will go and do it they will pay me in the process i'm not being paid for a job i'm being paid for a skill i'm trying to learn anyway Uh, and that's how i first landed in the sort of financial industry if you like but it was more financial or supporting the actual industry as opposed to being in the industry Okay. And that's how I first discovered banking. Oh, amazing. Actually, I'm going to come back to a question and, and you'll understand why. So when you, you got into banking, you're working in banking, what, did, what kind of tools did you have or what principles did you put in place for you to get promoted and get to the level where you are today? It's <laughs> a broad question. Yeah, no, easy. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's a huge question. And actually, you're guiding me. When you say, because... And I think back over the last 10 years and the promotions that have happened in the two years out that I took out business school and then came back. When you say the principles and like tools in place, how do you mean? As in, in terms of so getting promoted actually, or thinking about promotion? Actually getting promoted. So one of them, I'm assuming, was because you went to do your MBA. So that was a tool that you used. But then a principle may be around a way of thinking, something that you positioned yourself in, in terms of networking or what were uh, you a part of to get there. So it's sort of, it's, it is the two sides of a coin. 
Cool. Understanding promotion was a journey and it was one that I had to learn again, a free stuff on the move, on the go. Okay, fine. So school's fantastic and then I'm, I'm going to deviate and come back here. Okay. School, being edu- like going through the, I guess, educational infrastructure that we have mm. is a useful thing because you come out, you're educated, you hopefully have a specialized skill that you can then apply somewhere else. The very method of school is you do well if you get the highest grade. Anything else is deemed, well, somewhat failure. But ultimately speaking, success is just doing good. Then you come to the big, bad world. Yeah. And you do good, you do well on merit, but yeah. promotions don't seem to happen or don't align directly. And that was my first, I mean, you know, my parents, it was, it was the same theme. Work hard, do well, learn to be your value to other people, and success will come. I was like, great, this sounds good. This is a formula that works in school. Got to the world, did well for the first two years. Promotions were coming, but not quite as fast as they were for other people. Right. Who I didn't think were necessarily doing as much, or perhaps I was doing more than I needed to. Okay. But I saw that it wasn't aligning to being promoted. Yeah. And I'd say sort of a year and a half, two years in, I realized, oh, there is this concept, there is this thing called social capital. Okay. Right. If you do not have the backing of the right people, if you are not favored by those who have, you know, the, let's say, foresight as to what roles might come in the future. Yeah. If you do not have the sponsorship so that when you're not in a room, people are speaking on your behalf then promotion can come, but you're almost rolling the dice and hoping that your merit will pave the way. Yeah. Uh, a year and a half in, I said, well, okay, fine. And this was at a firm where I think we had, great firm, by the way, and I enjoyed my time there, but I was on the sales floor. Again, sales was a skill I wanted to learn. 200, 300 salespeople. I think of the 200, 300, maybe four, five maximum were black. I think we had one team lead, no large sort of like regional heads. And I thought, well, the route to success just doesn't look viable for yeah, me. Yeah. But I'm stubborn enough to want to figure out how this should work. And I okay. want to get promoted. I spent the first year and a half head down, working hard, worked, went to gym, went home. That was it. <laughs> and I learned very quickly, oh, if you didn't go to the Christmas parties, if you didn't go to the drinks after work, you didn't hear about the opportunities. You didn't build the right sponsorships. And so I said to myself, I'm going to spend the next year and a half going to every event I've never been to. And then I had a mantra, which was say yes, figure out the rest afterwards. Yeah. And I kid you not, the promotion salary doubled within 12 to 18 months. Do you know what? I'm so glad you uncovered that because a number of people, so again, Nigerians from South East London as well, I come across a number of people that say to me, I'm not a social person. You know, I don't really want to go. I want to go to finish at 5, 5.30 and go home. And that isn't a formula to get promoted because as you say, People are in the room talking to the people that are either doing the hiring or doing the recommending or sponsoring, as you say. And so actually attending these events, even though they are social, it's not necessarily social. (laughs) This is career, right? And I love that you said that. And so when you were going to this, were you trying to build a network or were you just trying to absorb what was happening? What was going through your mind at the time? (laughs) Well, okay, more the latter, right? So it was more... I was trying to absorb what was happening because I understood a network was important, if that makes sense. And this all came from, and I speak about, well, I just haven't actually, but when I speak or think back to my transition from university to the corporate world, mm. it was like being thrown in ice cold water and then someone just sort of left me there. Right. That was the feeling. Yeah. And I told you, so again, demographically, Southeast London, I'd say is very, very diverse, right? Yeah. Both in terms of, I don't know, ethnicity, actually also just socioeconomically, you can get quite a range. Yeah. So I started 
in a school called Black Blue Coats, which was a state school. Wasn't very good actually, honest. Mm-hmm. But I again enjoyed the experience there. Left and went to sixth form. That was the other side of the spectrum. So I'd say okay. in terms of ethnicity, not so diverse. Okay. Uh, Socio economically, quite a large range. Mm-hmm. University was the same feel, and then the corporate world came. Mm-hmm. And it was very much, I'd say, middle, upper. And it was a shock to me because actually just the normal dialogue, the things that were pop culture, I was just oblivious to it. Yeah. And it wasn't a question of intelligence, i.e., you know, you smarter to understand it. It was yeah. just a lack of exposure. Yeah. And I actually joke about this as well. And, you know, I mean, these are things that now I look back on, I think it was quite simple. But I've been in the cafeteria, and this may be in week two, I'm young, 21, eager just to do well, to succeed. And with my new graduates, and we're all sitting and, and discussing, and the discussion came up on like ties and how to do ties. Mm-hmm. I think it just came up, I don't know why, yeah. maybe it was. And it was all of the different variations of ties, right? And I mean, I'd spent my school years doing my own tie, but I just yeah. knew how to do a tie. Yeah. But I'd never discussed what I was doing. <laughs> so I didn't know the naming convention of ties. I remember uh, they were just going, they were just whipping through all the different ties from ones and single ones and double yeah. yeah. And I sat there at 21, I was like, I have, I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> Just, well, I know how to do mine. I just don't, I can't contribute to this. Yeah. And that's yeah. just, I mean, that's one fraction, but every discussion was like, it just flew over my head. Yeah. And so back to your question on, you know, going to the pub or going out for drinks, I became almost reverted back to being quite childlike. Mm. If you watch young children, the way they learn and grow is to just open their eyes, say nothing, just absorb. And you see, they, yeah. they just stare at stuff all the time. Yeah. For the first year and a half, I can speak. For ages, so always cut me off by the way and let me know if there's another question coming. No, I didn't speak much as much as I would probably for the first year and a half. Okay, I did for the first month, then realized yeah. culturally I just didn't understand what was going on, so I stopped speaking to just listen. Yeah, worked very hard, realized that the working hard alone wasn't enough, so started going out to events. Mm. And at that point, it was let me just learn as much about all of this culture I've never seen before as I can because if I don't learn to adapt, I will not survive. Right. Or I will survive only, but I won't succeed. So back to your question on being promoted. And, and this isn't just a you know, corporate thing. This is just, I think, a human thing. Mm. If you're in an, an environment that is somewhat alien to yourself and you are a minority, and this is for anyone, if you are an acute minority, you will have to learn to adapt to that environment to succeed. You can get by it, but you won't succeed. Mm. And so going to the event, going out to the drinks was a very purposeful right go out and understand the culture. Go out and understand what things you aren't aware of that you need to be aware of. And that's, that was my journey from adapting to assimilating for a while, then back to adapting okay. and learning how to be my authentic self, which is a journey even in itself today. But that's been a whole 10-year journey that has gone on. So to your question, it was to go absorb yeah. because networking was important in order to do well. And this yeah. ties back to social capital. And you have to understand it to succeed. Otherwise, you're rolling the dice and hoping someone else helps you get there that's amazing i mean there's so many things you brought out there especially even around the different stages with assimilating and adapting and i feel that adaptability is something that is absolutely key and and as you say it could be something small you know like yeah in in my culture when your food arrives you just eat it whereas (laughs) i went out of my workplace and, and i was like two thoughtfuls deep before i realized hang on a minute Everyone else is waiting for everyone else's food to arrive. Yeah. And it's, it's just small things like this. And look, I'm, one thing I do say is that 
I'm not advocating that you lose your identity or personality. Yeah. But sometimes you're in an environment where there is a just a, a way or even maybe a respectable way to do something. Yeah. And it's understanding that culture and that culture that you're in. Oh, and so do you feel that for other people that want to get into private wealth management, do you feel like there, there are, and this is the industry generally, yeah. do you feel like there are any barriers that you can't overcome to get there if you're from a diverse background? Um, when you say you can't, as in like there are certain barriers that one cannot yeah. get over. I'll speak on, actually, let, let me speak first on finance and then I'll speak on private wealth as I see the industry as well. Okay. And I'll speak on my journey and, and how I got in. So finance now, I think, you know, when you think of banking as an industry, they recruit from a broad range of universities and schools. Yeah. I feel where you have begun to get the exposure, you understand the industry, in uni you start making your applications, you network, it's just important, know people at the firms that you're trying to apply to, you can get access to opportunities from internships through to you know, full-time roles that can come through your academic route. When I think of the wealth management industry as a whole, I think there is sometimes a leaning towards having to have or need an existing network that can lead to you know, the growth of your business, so a clientele. So i.e. if you are not already connected to or there isn't already a strong story as to how you can build your book of business, sometimes in the recruitment process, and this is just generically speaking, right, it's harder for someone to see your merit as a potential wealth advisor or manager because they can't see your book of business already right, right, okay. versus how you could grow one right. just because you are someone who can go out and build their network. And so sometimes it's, well, if I don't already have the network, how do I get into the industry to prove I could grow the network? Okay. And maybe then there is just an over an over representation of those who already have access to a network of potential clients. Okay. Which means actually as an industry, we miss out on people who would be phenomenal wealth managers, advisors, relationship, you know, managers who would be great at this job but don't already sort of exist in this world. Okay. My own personal journey was I understood this, and I think this is where I speak about social capital, I speak about social equity, which is different to capital. So social yeah, well, you're about to explain. Yeah, yeah, I am. Okay, and this is just this is how I see it in my head. Like this isn't okay. some textbook definition. Maybe I should write it down. <laughs> Social capital or capital again is a resource that that can be spent or utilized. Social capital I see is the building of a bank balance so the people around you, one day you can spend that capital to say, can you help me get to where I have to get to? Right, sponsors, okay. stakeholders, mentors, and I say if you're going about your job, hopefully you're building up your merit. You're good at what you do. But are you building up your social capital bank that you can spend because you're going to need to spend it to get promoted or right. to get jobs? And you don't have to always be so proactive about it if it's not your personal yeah. nature. But just know there is a capital balance that you're either building or not building. Yeah. So focus on finding a way to actually build it. Social equity, or at least, uh, and this isn't quite the financial term, but I see this almost as like brand equity, if you like, Okay. is if I was to look at you and your brand, would you get into the right spaces on what I see from the very sort of, I guess, sort of shelf, if you like. Okay. And that's something I realised as a Londoner who had grown up in South East London, I went to a school, albeit in sort of Bexley Heath, Kent, South East. Yeah. Then went to university again in sort of East London. So Queen Mary is where I went. And then went to work in Canary Wharf. My entire life had gone from South East sort of across the river and finished back in the East Central. And that was the full spectrum of my international exposure. And I thought, my social equity, if someone looks at my story and doesn't get, you know, doesn't spend the time getting to know who I am, they won't see an, an, an international story. I might not yeah. fit the right profile to get into my future career. So by this point, I was thinking, 
banking would be interesting. This was investment banking or private equity or private wealth management. Mm-hmm. And so I knew I had to plug for that gap. Okay. And I just became conscious that people would judge me before I've even said a word. So let me just try to tailor that judgment so at least I can get the word in. Okay. Right. And it was, you know, I wanted to apply to a business school. I checked the rankings, the top business schools in the world, or there's one in the city, LBS. Fantastic. Yeah. I'd love to apply. And I went down and I heard the stories from all of the wonderful candidates who were going in and starting. And I thought, wow, I think I'm definitely smart enough to get in, but my story doesn't sound international enough. I don't speak enough languages. I don't know if I've played the right sports. And I was 23 at the time. And I said, well, if that's the case, what I'm going to do is feel for that, what I call now social equity or brand equity, maybe it's the same thing. Mm-hmm. So if someone says, let me assess this human, I just solve for all of the questions early. And I did everything. I took evening classes to learn Spanish for two years. My Spanish is still terrible. But at least I thought, right, I can begin to communicate in another language. I'm now somewhat bilingual on paper, <laughs> right? I then said, do I play the right sports? Have I played the right sports? I was aware that rugby is a sport that is, yeah. you know, one was an important sport actually for business school, but also was seen as a sport that, you know, people from an upper social um, economic class played. And so in my mid-twenties, decided to play rugby, which by the way, I wouldn't encourage for anyone. <laughs> I would, uh, I dislocated. Yeah, I'm a golfer, I don't play rugby. Golf is good. <laughs> Stick with golf. Mid-twenties, you don't get the benefit of playing rugby against sort of people who are your weight when you're like 14, 15, so you can adjust in your body. Yeah. I'm playing against grown men who played all of their life pure muscle <laughs> my joints did not know what was happening <laughs> dislocated shoulders hyperextended knees fractured wrists loved the sport but i thought you know not only am i now you know getting into a sport that i realize i've always wanted to play but at least my social equity is now going up okay. if someone is testing me for my, for my profile the sport looks correct okay. i started traveling more but not just light traveling active traveling like traveled to 12 countries in 12 months i was studying full-time i was studying well part-time working full-time why I wanted someone, if they assessed me, to say, oh, well, he's an international person. Mm. And I had it in my store. So by the time I applied to union, by this point, I was doing the sort of CFA exam, which is seen as the sort of gold standard in investment management. Yeah. I'd assessed for society and said, society will judge me before I'm in the room. Okay. So let me solve for those judgments nice and early, because when I'm in the room, I think I've got the credibility to do well. Right, okay. But you won't let me in. Yeah. So let me solve for the problem. By the time I applied, I was playing rugby, I could speak Spanish, I was traveling the world. I'd been promoted at work because I was saying yes to all these events. Um, not to say that played a part in me getting into business school, but it was certainly part of the story. Yeah. And then when it comes to getting into private wealth management, and it wasn't to say you have to do this to get in, but I mean, by the time I got there, it was, oh, well, this is a profile that looks in line with what we normally see. Mm-hmm. So let's interview him. And that's all I wanted. Yeah, you just wanted just to Just the interview. Right. No, that seemed like a lot to do to get one interview. But actually, at 23 years old, I, I made that plan. And I, and I wrote this stuff down. And when you say, did I think of a firm, the firm I work for today was one firm I had. Uh-huh. Maybe it was like three. And I said, if I can go and work for that firm one day, that would be cool. So let me do all of these steps beforehand so they can put me in a room. And that's what I want. Right. right. That's amazing. And a question I've got sort of going back um, to support that is, the, to support the story is, you would have had options to do different things, maybe even start your own business. I see with a lot of the younger generation that I talk to today is they feel that the only way to make it is to start their own business. What's your view on that? Because I suppose you could set up, because you're, you're qualified, you could set up your own private wealth management business, but what's your view and what would you advise? One, it's a good question, and I'll start with a personal. I actually quite like that 
being an entrepreneur, being entrepreneurial is something that's been discussed broadly and actually something that's been encouraged because historically it was, if we think back to, well, actually, at no, any point in time, it was go to school, especially if you were from, let's say, a family that had, you know, immigrated to the country, go to school, study, work, that's the end. I think this empowerment to say, let me create an enterprise is something that's needed, well, especially in diverse pockets because, you know, and almost by virtue of what I do for a living now is I'm always thinking yeah. about entrepreneurs. Yeah. Right? Every single commercial, business, corporate, every company that you interact with was someone's side hustle one day. Yeah. Every yeah. single company that exists, every public so company true. in the world was someone's brainchild of a side hustle that could make sense. Yeah. Every company. There is no monopoly on talent. There is no monopoly on commercial brilliance. Yet when you look at the number of black or diverse corporate owners in the public markets or the biggest unicorns in the sort of private world, you say, well, how, why isn't there diversity? Mm. Because there isn't a monopoly on who can create good business. Yeah. Right? So it's good that it's happening. I'm going to caveat this. I think the idea that you do not do a nine to five or that, you know, working for someone doesn't make sense anymore or actually it's disempowering if you do is misplaced, completely misplaced. I think what has happened is there isn't a full communication of all the career paths that exist in the world to everybody. Yeah. So if you, and this was me growing up, right, if you grow up and all you see are a tiny fraction of jobs that are your nine to five jobs and you say, I don't like any of them, the default is to say, so I have to be an, an um, entrepreneur. But actually what's happening is there's a big gap in the middle where it's, these are the jobs I've been exposed to, which is small, actually. Mm -hmm. I just don't know about all these other career paths that I would love to go and do before starting my own creation. And the reason why that's so important is, again, for the last, I don't know, well, since before uni, I've not worked for the purpose of earning money. Of course, it's helpful, but I've not mm -hmm. gone into a job to say, I need money, therefore I'm going to work. I've only worked for skills. There are skills... I find particularly interesting that someone else doesn't. I love uh, macroeconomics. Other people will be bored to death by it. <laughs> yeah. I said, if I can be in any job that forces me to read macroeconomics, I'm not working. I'm trying to read this stuff for free, but you're paying me. Okay. If you dedicate your time to learning a skill that is relevant to yourself and you can do that in employment, you are winning on both sides. You are learning, you are training, you are studying. Someone is paying you while learning to add value. And if at some point you say, let me go and create my own commercial enterprise, then by all means go and do so. But to feel as if, if I don't like this small set of careers, I now have to be an entrepreneur is the only option, becomes the justification for being an entrepreneur, then it's misplaced. Because actually, then this is just my opinion, we should all be saying, what skills are relevant to me? What do I find interesting in the world? Is there someone out there who would pay me to learn this skill? If there is, that's a great training ground for me. And I can learn how to run a business. I can, you know, master this skill in the process. I yeah. can service for the financial issues or considerations I, I have in life through a salary. Mm -hmm. And if one day I want to leverage this expertise and this experience to building a business, yeah. then by all means, I'll go and do so. And actually, you will see a lot of, at least historically, the most successful entrepreneurs have probably worked somewhere else for five to ten years before becoming when you look at the biggest corporations in the world, yeah. they've worked typically somewhere else beforehand yeah. and then said, I like this, but I can do it better, then gone on. And that's why I think actually just exposing people to more career paths yeah. is the beginning of the answer. So people aren't forced into entrepreneurship because they, they don't like the small range that they've seen. Oh, but that's fantastic advice. Thank you. And for anyone 
that wants to get into private wealth management or the financial world and they don't know where to start, what would be your advice for where to start? Social capital. And I keep saying this. Speak to people. We live in, in a world that is so connected now. Frightening so actually, to be honest. You can find most people online. LinkedIn, just drop, a, a, like me, right? Message me. I might not respond. Chase me. Tell me why it's irrelevant to your story. Show me the work that you've done beforehand. Let me try to find time. That's where I would start today. Okay. No, sorry. That's the second step I'll take. The first step is just to do the research. Yeah. Right? What is wealth management? What are the roles? Is this relevant to me? Uh, what are the firms that you know offer this service? You start there, then you reach out. And then it's, because of course there are different stages. It's, you know, if you're a young student looking to get into private wealth management, it's, you know, are there certain you know, educational paths that I should take that are relevant to the field? You know, do I have to do finance or maths or account? Start to answer those questions. If you're already in the professional world, then you have to solve for the brand equity or the social equity. And it's what parts of your story become relevant for the world of wealth management? Yeah. Do, is there, you know, a part of your story that means you are connected to, you know, potential people who are in need of wealth management services? If not, are there, you know, parts of your network that mean that you can have access to other networks, or do you have a professional skill set yeah. that is relevant? Do you have? I mean, and now you mentioned NFT, you mentioned digital assets, as we call it broadly in industry. It's it's becoming interesting. You know, are you someone that has specialist knowledge that a wealth franchise could use one day what part of your story is relevant or if like me you felt you know at the very beginning nothing was relevant whatsoever <laughs> yeah. what parts are you willing to go and build out so that there is a relevancy to that discussion and i think that's how you begin the journey of breaking in and it's yeah social capital who do you know who can you speak to okay. what parts of your story is relevant what research have you done and then you just map out, hopefully, some sort of structure and journey that says, I'm closer to someone seeing how I can add value. Because that's the most important bit, right? It's not so much, and this is Catch-22. To get the experience, people want you to have the experience. Right? <laughs> yeah. uh, which is annoying, to be honest. But yeah. I see now today why. And it's not, in my opinion, so that you only bring in people who are already of the world. Yeah. It's more, when I think about bringing someone in and training them up or as a team, it's... I still have the things that I'm going to be held accountable for. I want to ensure whoever comes in does really, really well. So if I know you can come in running, it's helpful. But then that's your catch-22. Yeah. How can I ask you to really be running if you've never had the experience? Yeah. And it's almost just show me what you have done that says you're already halfway up the curve or you're willing to run faster than someone else. Okay. So if I can bring you in and train you up or someone in my team or the industry, it's are you really shown why you will do well so as I'm trying to help you and I'm being chased or being held accountable for what I'm supposed to do, you have shown some sort of recipe of success already versus just the interest. Because the interest for me doesn't prove that, or show me that you're actually going to do well. Yeah. Because yeah, you haven't yeah. started the it's run. It's just the learning, yeah. Okay. And final question. Final question is, are there any materials, books, podcasts, apart from this one, obviously, yeah. that you would recommend for anybody that either wants to get promoted or specifically wants to grow in the sector that you're in? Oh, there's, there's a full range. And, okay, I'll start with an industry book that I like, and it's called The Most Important Thing by Howard Marks, a fantastic fund manager. I think I like the memos that he puts out. I like how he thinks and how he communicates it. I like his views of the world. So I think the most important thing, a good book, if you want to focus on, I guess, macro, big picture, financial markets. I am, and this is 
just intrigued by humans. I find the fact that there are seven and a half billion of us, or eight billion now, I don't know how many there are in the world, a lot. Yeah. For as long as robots haven't taken control, which might happen in the future, right? Yeah. You are going to have to interact with other human beings, whether you like them or not. When I think about getting promoted, when I think about, you know, succeeding in the corporate world or in life in general, my problem solving said, if I can't avoid human beings in order to be successful, because they're going to be everywhere I am, then I must learn, one, to understand the human that I am first. Like, who am I? You know, what has happened in my life that has made me who I am today and how I, I operate? And most importantly, how in control of it? Or how aware of it am I? And the second is, how well do I understand other human beings and my interaction with them? Because at some point, that's going to affect how successful I am. So books that I found great from that, I mean, Dale Carnegie has some great books, but How to Win Friends and Influence People, yeah. I think that's a great book. There's a book on understanding oneself. So actually, I, when I was very young, I was very confident, but there was no justification for it. I just decided that confidence was helpful, <laughs> which sounds great, but actually it's, 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 it's like, it's useful in the short term. Okay. Because confidence gets you only so far. When you are not in control of your confidence, then at some point, I, I almost feel like you, you, you lose control of the power that confidence can actually give you. Okay. And by that, I'm talking about self-confidence, self-esteem, and everything else. Uh -huh. Having had the benefit of being very just self-confident and maybe my academic ability helped drive that or, or support it. Yeah. Then going through life and actually ultimately rebuilding what I understood to be self-confidence. Now that I understand the framework of what we call self-esteem or self-confidence, there I'd say, I, 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 and I struggle to think what could happen. There aren't many things that could happen in my lifetime, I think, that would rock my self-belief in myself. Okay. And I feel like if you're going to get promoted, if you're going to do well, you have to have an unshakable self-belief in your ability as a human being. And for that book, for that, there's a, a great book called The Six Pillars of Self-Esteem. Pretty thick book by a psychologist called Nathaniel Brandon, if my memory is correct. And the reason why that, that, that book is so good is I think it will rock most people and your understanding of who you are and where your self-esteem has come from and why you behave your, the, the um, way you are. And I think through that rocking, through that restructuring, then you can begin to... Like, I don't believe self-confidence is something that is, you know, given to some and, and not to others. If you watch most very, very young children, you know, they start off with this unwavering belief they can do whatever they want, you know, yeah. and they will jump off stairs and believe it's going to be okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's that inherent belief that says, I as a human can do what I like. Okay. I have the ability to achieve whatever I, my mind dreams of, and I think life slowly rubs that out of you, right? I think parents, I think sometimes your friends, I think sometimes events, wears that down, but you have to find a way to keep that rock solid. And this book rebuilds that framework for you, at least gives a good understanding. So those are two random books I'll give, but yeah, yeah. Uh, there are... No, no, that's, that's amazing because uh, yeah, a couple of those I haven't actually heard of, so I'm going to go away and read those myself. <laughs> that I, cool. it's been it's been amazing speaking to you. Thank you for your openness and your time. I appreciate everything that you've that you've done in your life because then it's now able to impact others. And thank you for being so resilient, yeah, you know, and taking taking yourself to the top. Are there any closing remarks that you want to leave with our listeners? I mean, what? Well, actually, one again, thank you for your time and thank you for for actually just creating and making this as well. I think it's important. For, and I'm probably particularly quite bad at just getting my own story out there. Yeah. When I think about my journey, and by the way, I say my journey, this is one that's going to continue and hopefully for yeah. a long time, right? If I would. And I think, I think the question I ask is, and or people ask me, I, why, do you, why do you want to push yourself so hard all the time? 
And I say, it's not, when I think about it, I don't see myself as pushing myself hard. I'm just relentlessly curious, mm. not just about the world, but I'm here, you know, I'm alive. I just want to know what I'm capable of doing mm. before I'm done, you know, because that's the one thing that's a definite. Yeah. At some point, this all finishes individually for everyone. We all die. Yeah. And people are like, oh, that sounds so morbid. Can't say that to people. I'm like, well, it's, it's actually a given. Yeah, like, you yeah, are definitely going to be. So actually, before that day comes, I just, I'm just really curious as to what I'm capable of doing, irrespective of a starting point, irrespective of, you know, societal structures, even though I have to manage for those. What was I, Ayo Gabriel, the human, from the very beginning, what was I capable of, of doing before I stopped? And for as long as I'm curious, it's not a pushing, it's a pulling. I'm, I'm just pulling myself towards the answers. And like any child, you leave them and you give them loads of things in a the room. They just run from one thing to the next because they're just curious. What is this thing? What is this smell like? What does this taste like? I am just a grown-up version of life. What opportunity exists behind this door? What didn't I have access to last week or last month? Or what opportunity, you know, did I not know existed but now exists? And what happens if I take this? It's just a constant running from door to door to door to door to door. And I see my life as one massive mansion. And not everyone gets access to see the whole mansion, which is a shame, right? Yeah. But actually, I feel not many people believe they have the right or, I don't know, the entitlement to go and see it. And for me, I like to debunk and deconstruct that. And I say I will remain as childlike in my ambition. I'll just use my grown-up wisdom to try to explore as many rooms in that mansion as, as possible before someone hits my clock and says, you're, 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 you're done, time up. Amazing, thank you. That's really insightful. Yeah. Appreciate you, sir. Cool. Me. Take no, care. Thanks for having me. <laughs>